Last week's disclaimer is still very much in place. Once again, there are many adult themes in this episode, and it probably wouldn't be great for children. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're continuing a series of epic Irish legends. You'll see that violence solves everything, and that if you want to make admission to your school more difficult, there's a solution. Just enchant the only bridge to the school so that it's as slippery as an eel and only as wide as a hare. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a river dweller who might make a whirlpool and drown you, or just lead to massive parties for your whole village. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 22B. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore that have helped shape our world. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Before I get started, I just want to say thanks to Colm, Ellie, Egan, Gillian, and Tamara for help with the pronunciations of specific names. And a very special thanks to Nathan Patterson for his repeated help and detailed explanations of how all the names are pronounced. That being said, these people have done all they can for me, and I take full responsibility for mispronunciations going forward. It's not their fault I can't say words. Basically, the current king of Ulster is named King Krahur. Not Conchavor or whatever I was calling him last week. I've also heard Conchavar, but I'm going with Krahur since that seems to be the most widely agreed upon one. With this one, I'll be sure to mention him as the king of Ulster each time, so you aren't hopelessly lost with me changing the name of one of the key characters. It's apparently the source of the name Connor, so yeah, I was way off with that one. Sorry about that. There are other changes, like Mev actually being pronounced Maeve. There are some characters that won't make another appearance, like the woman I was calling Deirdre, remember she died in the chariot, her name is actually pronounced Deirdre. The man I was calling Dare is Dara, and I still can't pronounce the name of the satirist I was calling Leverchelm. Oh, and Fergus McCroy is actually Fergus McRoach. Anyway, we'll get started. Previously on the Myths and Legends podcast, a lot of things happened. So if you didn't listen to the last episode, it would be a very good idea to go back and listen. Anyway, King Krahur came to power in Ulster, a kingdom in Ireland, and went to work alienating his most powerful allies, with them choosing exile with Queen Maeve and King Alil in Connacht. Maeve and Alil got into a bit of a quarrel about who was richer, which ended up with Maeve attempting to get a bull from Ulster. It didn't work out, and the two kingdoms went to war. Unfortunately, an old curse triggered for the Ulstermen, and as soon as the warriors invaded, they all felt as if they were going into labor. Driving the warriors from Connacht, Maeve, Alil, and Fergus find a shadowy figure standing in their path. They get closer, and it's a woman, who removes her model cloak for all to see her beauty. As it turns out, she's a prophetess of Connacht, their kingdom, and she's come with a warning. When Maeve asks three times how her army will fare in the attack on Ulster, three times the woman says she sees it in crimson. This is impossible, Maeve says. The Ulstermen are in their birth pangs. The girl shrugs. She doesn't know what to say. She sees what she sees. In the fray and fury, she sees one man standing against their whole army. In the blood and chaos, he will take the lives of thousands. He can transform into a hideous monster. His name is Kukulin. They're unfazed, brush the girl aside, and continue on. There's some slight infighting with the army of Connacht, but Maeve really skillfully holds everything together when dealing with some tough guys and big personalities. A quarrel arises between her and Fergus about some troops that would be helpful for them, but might take all the glory. And Maeve proposes killing the troops. 
Fergus says, you'll do this over my dead body. And Maeve says, okay, we might, and details all of her personal warriors. She and Fergus then reach a solution that they can both agree on. Fergus was still torn about attacking Ulster, despite losing his son to King Krahurs, the King of Ulster's warriors years ago. He quietly sent word to Ulster about the attacking army. He knew that they would be in their birth pangs, and because of his old friendships, he owed them at least a warning. It would be a slaughter otherwise. In Evamaka, King Krahur of Ulster's city, the message reached a young man who, for one reason or another, wasn't affected by the pangs. Whether it was because his father wasn't there when Maka screamed, or he's just special because he's the son of a god, Kukulin heard the message that Fergus was on his way and rode off to defend his people. Eventually. There are about four different versions of Kukulin's birth story. I'm going to go with the one that seems to be the most accepted, but one that doesn't really make sense to me. As begin most stories, there's a flock of magical birds over Ulster. 320 birds total, if you're wondering, and they wore silver chains. And also, this is like 18 years before what's happening currently in our story. The birds were eating every plant and tearing them up by the roots, and so King Krahur of Ulster rode out with his hunters to kill them. His sister, Dectina, was his chariot driver and went with him. They chased the birds all day until they were far from home in a deep forest. They found a house that seemed to be newly built, and the whole party settled there for the night, despite that being very cramped. The host was pleasant, and King Krahura's men raided the storehouse and got drunk. In the storehouse, they heard a woman giving birth. King Krahura's sister helped, and the baby was born. Dectina held him. That was the last thing she remembered. The next morning, she felt something on her face. Snow? How could it be snow? They had been inside the house. She felt something move against her chest. The baby. Her eyes snapped open and she looked around. All the other hunters that had come with them were still asleep, but everyone was under blankets out in the snow. The house and their hosts had completely vanished. It looked as if they were never there to begin with. All they left were the baby and some horses that had been born the night before as well. They were confused and they just packed up and went home. They had chased the birds from Ulster anyway. Confusion turned to tragedy when Dectina found that the baby became more and more sick as he got closer to Ulster. Then, sadly, he died. Here's where things start to get a bit confusing, for me at least. Weary and thirsty, Dectina takes a drink, but sees a tiny man in it. She accidentally swallows the tiny man, and that night she's visited by someone. Some sources say that this is a god, and others that it was just a mysterious spectral man. Anyway, he tells her that she will become pregnant, and the baby is to be named Satanta. This happens, but presents further problems when Dectina is to be married off. Not thrilled about going to her marriage bed a pregnant version, versions vary from her being so stressed out that she miscarries, to her finding another way to abort the pregnancy. Regardless, she marries, and is considered a virgin whole and becomes pregnant with her husband, and names that baby Satanta. So, to me, there are two perfectly good mythical parentages that go nowhere. And then Satanta, the boy who turns into Kukulin, is the result of a fairly mundane, normal pregnancy. Though, spoiler alert, he is actually considered the son of the god Lug. There's a later, more condensed version, where Dectina disappears from Evamaka, and King Krahura and friends go riding after the magic birds. 
They find her in the house, in labor, and she gives birth to Satanta, cutting on a few layers of tragedy and confusion. In this one, he is very obviously the son of the god Lug, a hero king from Ireland's mythic past. Regardless of where he came from, it's obvious that this kid is special, and everyone wants to foster him. So King Corhura of Ulster lets everyone raise him and train him. Fergus, especially, took great interest in the boy, and trained him to be a powerful warrior, before the death of his own son led Fergus in exile. When he was just a boy, he carried a wooden shield and spear, and heard of 150 boys, far off, who trained in a field. These are the boy troops of Ulster. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's a bunch of children who train for war. King Krahur of Ulster spends one-third of his day watching them, one-third of his day playing a board game, and one-third of his day drinking so much ale and eating so much that he has to go to sleep. Yep, it's good to be the king. Kukulin, though he isn't called that yet, wants to go train with the boys, but his mother tells him no, absolutely not. He says that he'd really like to go, and she says, okay, just take that path there. He saw the boys in the field training, and since they were troops, he needed to get a pledge of safety to approach them. Everyone in Ulster knew this, except Kukulin. He runs up to them to say hi, and they start hurling javelins at him. He blocks them with his shield, or dodges them, and then the boys pick up everything they have and hurl things at Kukulin. Still, nothing can touch him. This constant barrage, though, is making Kukulin angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. That's right, Kukulin can hulk out. So, here's where I'm going to talk about Kukulin's famous warp spasm or Torque, or Rystad. It's where he gets so mad, he goes into Berserker mode. Like the Viking warriors, he was believed to transform, but his transformation wasn't as gentle as a bear. I'll let one of the more popular versions lay it out for you. He became a monstrous thing, hideous and shapeless, unheard of. His body made a furious twist inside his skin, so that his feet and shins switched to the rear, and his heels and calves switched to the front. On his head, the temple sinews stretched to the nape of his neck, each mighty, immense, measureless knob as big as the head of a month-old child. He sucked one eye so deep in his head that a wild crane couldn't probe it out of his cheek. The other eye fell out along his cheek, his mouth weirdly distorted. His cheek peeled back from his jaws until the gullet appeared. His lungs and his liver flapped in his mouth and throat. His lower jaw struck the upper, and fiery flakes, large as ram's fleece, reached his mouth from his throat. Also, his hair spikes up so much that if he's standing under an apple tree, the apples get stuck in it and don't touch his head. In many instances, this makes Ukulin super powerful, but it also could twist him in such a way as to be a liability. It could hurt him, and when in this form, like some versions of the Hulk, he doesn't recognize friends or enemies. He's just wild and destructive. I don't know where this comes from, though it's apparently a trope in Celtic literature. Regardless, we aren't given specifics as to why Kukulin has this, but it's an incredible superpower. So he transforms, and he immediately lays 50 boys low, without killing them. He chases six more, and knocks over King Krahur's game board, and the king is able to grab Kukulin by the wrist, and stop him. I guess he's just a mini-hulk at this time, since he's only a small boy, and King Krahur puts him under his protection, so that the boys will stop attacking. But, given the situation, it's not likely that they would have kept attacking. With help of their parents, the 50 boys pick themselves up off the ground and resume training at some point. Kukulin stayed in Evan King Krahur's town, 
but people were afraid to wake him up in the morning. One man tried, and the boy shut up and struck him so hard in the forehead that it made his forehead concave, sending it straight back into his brain, killing him. People let Kukulin sleep as late as he wanted after that. There are more stories, and they mostly involve Kukulin getting anger with someone and killing them. He alternately fights the boy warriors or leads them. The story where he gets his namesake, remember that he's still Satanta right now, comes when Kurhur is so impressed with his games that he invites him to a feast. He said he'd love to, but he wants to spend a little more time out in the fields, playing. At the feast, Colin, a friend of King Kurhur's, asks if everyone is here. The king of Ulster, forgetting about Kukulin, says, Yep, good, Cullen says. He has a massive hound that takes three people on three chains just to control. He lets it loose to guard his town. And he does so. Walking back, they hear the hound snarling and going after someone. They rush with glee to the wall, but King Kukur's smile fades to horror when he remembers Kukulin. He forgot about the boy, and watching the hound charge him, he realizes he's killed his sister's nephew. Well, it's a short fight. Some sources say that Kukulin slams the dog against a pillar and his limbs fly off, and others say that the boy threw him a ball. That went right through the hound's head, in the shortest, most tragic game of fetch ever. King Krahur was happy, but Cullen mourned his savage dog, who had been his protector for all these years. Kukulin says that he'll look all over Ireland for another hound like the one he just killed. But in the meantime, he will be the man's hound. He will guard the houses and flocks. And that's how he got his name. Ku is the Irish word for hound, and Cullen is the man's name. Kukulin then means the hound of Cullen. And yeah, I have no idea how I got Kahulin, but whatever. Time passed, and he excelled in everything. And the men of Ulster began to worry. This boy was powerful, skilled, and worst of all, really, really good looking. Everyone was scared that he would seduce their wives and daughters. There was also a troubling prophecy. It said that he would attain great fame, but that, like Achilles, his life would be short. They know that only from Kukulin could another Kukulin come, so they must find a match for him while there's still time. As a teenager, he went on his own accord to woo a girl he knew, named Amur. He found her in her father's fort, and began speaking riddles with her. He looked at her chest, and said he saw a sweet country, where he could rest his weapon. Yeah, who can guess the meaning of this complex and inscrutable riddle? Well, she guessed it, and gave him a number of tasks. They involved killing 100 men in a number of fords. They also involved doing a salmon leap, carrying twice his weight in gold, and fighting three groups of nine men, killing all but the middle man in each group of nine. He agreed to these tasks, and went back to King Krohur's city of Evanmaka. The next day, a strange man from Gaul, basically France, showed up, talking about someone in Scotland who was really great at training warriors. He looked around and mused aloud that, hmm, I guess everyone here is too scared to. Kukulin knew that he would fight even more marvelously if he could train with this person in Scotland. Everyone agrees that this is a great idea, and send Kukulin away to Scotland to train under a man named Domnall, apparently putting the whole thing about him finding a wife on the back burner for now. He rides off to visit Amir again, and she says, yeah, that man wasn't from Gaul. It was my father. He doesn't want me to marry you and wants you to die. So even though you're going to go anyway, maybe watch out and try not to die. 
He agrees to try not to die, and they pledge themselves to one another. To be pure until they meet again, or until one of them dies. Cullen finds his way to Scotland and Domnall, and we're just going to cue a training montage here. Cullen does the hero's coil on top of a spear point without his feet bleeding. He's trained even further in the salmon leap, and the pierced flagstone, and more. And if you're wondering what these are, so am I. And so was my professor in college. Unfortunately, not a lot of the descriptions of these things, be they fighting techniques or otherwise, have survived. The salmon leap, though, is thought by some to be simply perfecting a high jump technique to jump over an enemy shield wall in battle, but that just seems like an educated guess. Anyway, he learns everything from Domnall that he can, and the man says that there's one more step to complete his training. He needs to go to Skullhawk, on the Isle of Skye. As it turns out, there's one bridge to the Isle of Skye, and it's called the Pupil's Bridge. You must cross it to even have a chance at studying under Skullhawk. It's devious. It's enchanted, and it sometimes looks like a normal bridge. Until you get on it. Then, it warps to be as thin as a hair. Like, the hair on your head, not a rabbit. And slippery as an eel. When it's not as thin as a hair, it will retain the slipperiness, and just shoot up in the middle, making it impossible to climb. After a failed attempt, it will just slide the person back to the other side. And shame. It normally takes a large amount of instruction to get across by my reckoning something like 17 months of training. There was a big group of boys just hanging around the bridge, waiting for Skullhawk to come out and instruct them for the day. Kukulin says, 17 months? He's a legendary warrior who's prophesized to die young. He doesn't have 17 months. He tries it, and on the very first time, he fails. But then he picks himself up, and on the second time, he also fails. And it's finally on the third time that he fails again. Sources conflict as to what happens next, whether it was his epic salmon leap that got him to the raised middle of the bridge, or whether he went into his warp spasm and hulked out and made the jump. But he jumped really high and made it to the middle, and then jumped straight to the island. In the version where he transforms, he runs up to the gates of the school and smashes them to pieces. Then he changes back. I'm guessing his clothes are unaffected, because it's not said whether he has stretchy purple hulk pants. He found some extremely tough-looking men, some boys in training, and one beautiful woman who beckoned him inside. Quickly, in one version, there's an elaborate hazing ritual where Gukulin is thrown on the top of a roof and must survive spears and javelins being thrown at him. He does, and kills some people for good measure. The girl who took him in was immediately drawn to him and admired his shape. She told her mother, Skullhawk, the warrior woman he was seeking to learn under, all about him, and she approved of the match, saying the girl could take him to her bed if she wished. Well, she did wish. They got on well, and they spent the evening together. Unfortunately, that did not go super well, because he somehow hurt her fingers, and she cried out. Given that they're on an island compound filled with warriors, one came rushing in, sword drawn, and didn't ask questions before going right after Kukulin. Our hero scrambled to his sword, parried the warrior, and cut the warrior's head off. Skullhawk, the teacher, mourned him, but Kukulin, despite not even being admitted to her school yet, offered to take up his duties and lead her warriors to victory. She didn't admit him or give him an answer, and three days passed in silence. Finally, Skullhawk's daughter, the one who had been with Kukulin, thought of something, 
the teacher, was out training her sons in the salmon jump, and she thought she heard something. She was out in a clearing and heard rustling in the woods, but then it stopped. She made a note of it and went back to instructing her sons. Then she heard a grunt, a slam, and felt a point on the back of her neck. Death hangs over you, a male voice said. It was Kukulin. He had jumped from the tree line to surprise her and was standing on the weapon chest above her. She could see that this boy, who had killed one of her best and surprised her, was worth training. She asked what things he wanted, but he must tell her in one breath. The daughter had prepared for this, so he said that he would like to be trained by her, wanted a dowry for marriage, and to know his future, because, of course, Skullhawk is also a prophet. She agreed, and Kukulin sheathed his blade. He stayed there for a while, training and living with Skullhawk's daughter. Under Skahawk's tutelage, he meets several other young men, a few of which also traveled over from Ireland. In the beginning, since he was the new guy, he had to serve some of the students that had more seniority. There was one that he had to clean up after that he actually got close with. His name was Ferdia, and he was a few years older than Kukulin. He was a focused and serious student, and he and Kukulin were matched in talent and ability. Kukulin respected the young man, and they became roommates and very close friends. Some interpretations say that they were more than friends, and that's really debated, but just know that the interpretations exist. They were among the best warriors in the school, and they used to go out and fight rival people groups and tribes, fighting back-to-back and trusting each other completely. Skahawk was their foster mother, and they were foster brothers. It's like they were family. After some time, Ferdia's training was complete, and he left the school and went back to Ireland. The two friends embraced, and since they were both from Ireland, vowed to meet again someday. No one really addresses Emer, the girl he had left back in Ireland, under the promise that he would stay pure, or the fact that he seems to have broken his promise at the first opportunity. Emer has suitors coming for her, but she turns them away because she's pledged herself to Cullen. And since no one wants to mess with him, they don't push the issue. Back in Scotland, Cullen is still living at Skullhawk School when they go up against a rival chieftain. Her name was Afe, and she was someone even Skullhawk was afraid of. After many feats and fighting on tightropes, it comes down to a duel between Efe and Kukulin to settle the battle. Before the fight, Kukulin asks Skullhawk what Efe loves most, and she tells Kukulin that Efe loves her horses, chariot, and charioteer the most. During the fight, Efe immediately smashes Kukulin's sword. That's how strong she was. She was closing in when he said, essentially, Look over there! Everything you love fell off a cliff and is lying smashed and dead in a valley. She spun around and he took advantage of the situation. Yes, that actually worked. It must be the first and last time in history that that's ever worked. Maybe Kukulin actually made up the hey look over there tactic. He grabs her and flings her over his back. He's won. He takes her to his camp and throws her on the ground. Someone hands him a sword and he holds it to her throat. Like with Skullhawk, she admits defeat and says that she'll grant him three things if he can say them in one breath. He says he wants hostages for Skullhawk and for Effie never to attack her again. Two, he wants her company tonight in her fort. And three, he wants her to bear him a son. Which, yeah. Efe, who didn't really have any choice, bears him a son. And he leaves a ring for the boy. 
He says when the boy's thumb is big enough to fit that ring, he should come and find Cucullin in Ireland. He names the boy Conla and says that he must not tell anyone that name. Also, he's not to make way for anyone and must not refuse anyone a fight. And yeah, he's making a lot of demands for this kid he's just going to abandon. He leaves and goes to finish his training. There's a whole list of feats he learns. He also got the Gaibolga, a powerful weapon that was like a barbed spear. I say like because there are many different interpretations on the mythical item. Skullhawk begins prophesizing and says that sorrow and death will go in Kukulin's wake all of his life. She sees scores and scores of men he'll kill, but she also sees his blood on shields and spears and his body lying dead and torn apart. She says that his years shall be short, but they'll be filled with triumph and women, so it shouldn't matter that they're so few. He takes this completely in stride and leaves and sails across the sea for Ireland. And yes, he also abandons Skullhawk's daughter. No mention's given to that. He returns to King Krahur and Evamaka and then goes back for Amr, the woman he had pledged himself to. Her father is less than pleased that he's been unable to marry off his daughter because this hero said that he would maybe like to marry her someday. So he calls out his warriors when Kukulin approaches. And Kukulin slays 309 of them. Kukulin does his salmon leap over different enclosures and walls until he comes to three groups of nine men and, yeah, you guessed it, he kills all but the middle one in each group. He finds the father, Kukulin likely breathing hard, gripping his sword and covered in blood. The father is rightfully very terrified and breaks off into a run. Unfortunately, he doesn't look before he runs and drops right off the edge of the wall and dies. His warriors, though, are still enraged, and Kukulin finds Emer and her foster sister. He scoops them up as well as their weight in gold, and Salmon leaps right on out of there. They're running on the road when they come to a ford, and 100 armed men. Kukulin draws his sword, and soon, it's just a ford with 100 armed corpses. He kills 100 men at every ford between there and Ulster, thus fulfilling his promise and what he needed to do to marry the girl. They get to Evan Maka, and Kukulin wants to be married that night. They get married, but there's a hushed silence in the fort. So we have this tradition, Fergus says. Remember that he's still not in exile. Kukulin learns about Prima Nocta, and how all recently married women must share a bed with King Krahur on their first night of marriage. Kukulin is enraged, but King Krahur won't relent. The general consensus about this is that it would be a challenge to his authority. And the other people might think that they could do something wild, like refuse to let the king sleep with your spouse on your wedding night. Really, though, it's not like anyone had a choice. They reach a solution. Emer will still share his bed, but Fergus and Cuthbert will be there too, to ensure nothing happens. This way, King Krahur can save face and keep Kukulin from going on a rampage. Unfortunately for everyone else in the kingdom, if you're not a legendary warrior who's the nephew of the king, the law still very much applies to you. That brings us up to the present day, with Maeve's raid. Queen Maeve, King Aleel, and Fergus are coming with their warriors. All the fighting men of Ulster are laid up with their birth pangs, and Kukulin is making all haste to meet them, except when he stops off that night to spend the evening with a woman who isn't his wife. And this actually leads to big trouble for him, because Queen Maeve and her forces are able to get into Ulster. Before he departed, though, he left a message for the invading troops, should they come this way. 
Fergus, because of his old friendships, was taking a long way around and stalling for time. He didn't like King Krahur, but he still had friends in Ulster. He had ruled over it once upon a time. Queen Maeve noticed this and chastised him, but he told her it was, in part, to avoid Cucullin. He had trained this kid, and Maeve didn't know what she was up against. Marching on, they found the message Cucullin had left. It was a hoop hanging on a standing stone. It said, essentially, do not pass here unless you can make a hoop with one hand out of one piece of wood, like I did. P.S. Fergus, you're cool. Don't worry about the whole hoop thing. You can pass if you want. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but there would be a curse. That curse's name was Cucullin, and if no one from the invading army could make the hoop but pass the stone, it meant that the rules of war had been broken. Cucullin would find them. They could be locked in their homes or under the protection of a king, but it didn't matter. They would never be safe again. Oh, hey, King Alil said. Can't we just go far around the Standing Stone? Like, through that forest over there? So we don't technically need to pass it and can still invade? Fergus looked at it and, wow, yeah, they could. So they did. They camped out in the snow and in the forest. This had been a pretty easy invasion so far. They didn't have too long before they found the bull and, wait, what was that coming up? They heard horses in the woods, but, oh, it's okay. Four warriors had ridden out earlier that day to scout ahead. It was hard to see through the forest, and the horses... Oh, but wait, the horses didn't have riders. That's weird, but maybe they just got away from the warriors and ran back. Yeah, that's it. Then they saw that the horses were covered in blood, and rightfully assumed the worst. Maeve, Fergus, and Alil took many, many people with them to investigate and they found the four warriors' heads on spikes in the middle of a river. These were the first four deaths in what would eventually become an extremely costly and legendary war. Queen Maeve, though, wasn't worried. She remarked, after Fergus told her of Cuchulain's boyhood deeds, that Cuchulain was a powerful young man, but he was just a kid, and human. A person could only take so many javelins and spear thrusts before falling just like everyone else. And... Looking back at her army, that some sources say numbered over 50,000, she wasn't worried. She had a lot of spears. I have to leave off there, because once we get into the fighting in earnest, it doesn't let up at all. This story does a great job of bringing in all the backstory and character relations for that final conflict, which is an epic battle between tens of thousands, for the right to own a bull. I want to say thanks to Brill Banana, TT1982, Two Boys Full, Loin Sai, Das Emma Dilemma, Bennett, Bluebell276, Bonjour5614, MPS Guru, Feel, Smelly Moo, and Precious Girl for the reviews on iTunes. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is a great place for that, and it's really helpful for the show, and you can find it at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. You can support the show for $5, less than the price of a tube of bacon lip balm. The choice to me seems obvious. Show your support for weekly podcasting, get extra episodes and source pack ebooks, or the feeling of constantly having baking grease on your lips. If you're interested, you can check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature of the week is the Nguru Vilu from Chilean folklore. More specifically, it's from the Mapuche, a group indigenous to Chile and parts of Argentina. Special thanks to Brian, who's also a member on the site, for directing me to this creature. It's another type of fox creature, though this one is very different from the ones I've talked about. This is a fox snake, 
and its name literally means fox snake, and I'll just call it that from now on. It's a water creature, and it lives in rivers. It's long and snake-like, and makes the water appear shallow to try to make you think it's safe to cross. It's not safe, of course, and the fox snake will make a whirlpool, in which it will drag you down, kill, and eat you. There are ways to avoid it, simply crossing in a boat will do. But if you want to get rid of it, the process is much longer and considerably more fun. You can either call a machi, basically a shaman or religious leader and healer, or you can call a good kalku, a sorcerer. For obvious reasons, you should not call a bad sorcerer to help. They will dive into the river with a large knife, and with their magical powers, they will drag the fox snake up and threaten it. Of course, this shaman or sorcerer only threatens the fox snake. She doesn't kill it. The fox snake won't be allowed to hang out at this particular crossing anymore, but he will just go on to the next one. And so on and so on. It's important that this event is witnessed by the whole village, because afterwards there can be no fear of crossing the river. Then, everyone just has a big party. There have been some attempts to explain what this might be. The most likely explanation is just that it's a larger-than-normal otter, which, if you think about it, fox snake is an excellent way to describe an otter. That's it for the show this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. (laughs) 